Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. My name is Robert. I am the Recovery Guy. Welcome back to Recovery Guy Podcast. It has uh, been more than a minute since I have um, published something uh, that is current and relevant. And thank you for your patience with me. It has been just an incredibly busy uh, April and May with much personal and and uh, recovery travel, but it's good to get back in front of the microphone and in the uh, Recovery Guy podcast studio. So let me get you a little updated real quick. Uh, I was traveling in California on vacation and then also speaking at Cedar House. So thank you to Melissa and to Daniel for making that happen. I had an opportunity to be a part of Cedar House uh, third annual alumni. I was the featured speaker there. More excitingly, I was able to get in with the male and the female clients for 90-minute breakout sessions with each one talking about recovery as a whole and what it is like being in treatment and what it is like transitioning out and how do we go from not being able to stay sober one day to all of a sudden putting these one day at a time in a row where we can effectively and effectively change our life and the path of our destiny. Great opportunity there. Um, in the process of that, I had an opportunity to meet up with uh, my good friend, Burke A. Brown. I will put the notes in there, burkeabrown.com. You've got to check this guy out. Burke and I met each other a number of months ago, and we've been formulating an opportunity to chat uh, uh Brother Brown is um, actually, he is a real expert in mental health and anxiety and overcoming mental health conditions and and growing anxiety that would prevent us from seeing ourselves as the positive force that we were created to be. And his work is so much involved in there. And so what Burke and I are trying to do is find the connection between addiction and mental health, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, and does it really matter? Because we need a common solution to both concerns. Obviously, many mental health conditions bring on addiction, and addiction oftentimes will bring on mental health and certainly exasperate something that already exists. And we need to find a place, find a middle of the road where we can solve this common problem and help individuals recover, get well, and live a life beyond their even their own expectations. So having said that, another plug, thank you all that have donated and been a part of my uh, hope to get everything funded for this summer and and, and not charging any clients for speaking uh, or, or coaching or any travel that may be involved in going to particular sites to assist agencies. As you know, most of them are government funded, which means they are underfunded and they'd be limited if they have any funds to compensate me at all for my time and my travel. This is a way for you at $50 each 
to, to share in that expense that we may spread this message of hope, of recovery, of wellness, that each person can understand their own personal destiny and be a victor, not a victim. So go to Venmo. It's the best way to do it. Go to Venmo. Go to Robert-Pardon, P-A-R-D-O-N, Robert-Pardon-3. Hyphen so at Robert-Pardon-3. Donate $50 one time. Make sure I have your address so I can send you my promotional branded material, a 10-ounce cup, a drawstring bag, and then four wristbands with Recovery Guy, my website. That is my gift, my thank you to you for continuing to support this mission and what we try to do to help each individual one day at a time reinvent themselves so they can have a manner of living that you and I have come to enjoy and appreciate. You know, all the social media I'm on between Facebook and Instagram, I dropped um, TikTok because it was it was not for me in my format. Maybe for some, uh, I'm not a, a 30 second instant gratification person. I'm not very clever. I'm just very straightforward to recovery, and it didn't seem like my format was fitted for TikTok. But I am finding some results and some good interaction on uh, Twitter. So at RecoveryGuy1986, you can find me on Twitter. And I find a lot of individuals who are trying to work the steps and having a difficult time. There was a person the other day, and we're going to talk about the steps and addiction and understanding addiction somewhat today across the board, not just alcohol or drugs, but behavioral challenges that, that divert us from our primary purpose, of, which is to become well. So this person said, I'm finally getting to step two. I've relapsed on step two the entire time. So every time they get to step two, they relapse. And for some reason, they think it has to do with step two. Well, we don't relapse because of step two. If you're if you're familiar with uh, 12-step recovery, it's came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There's no triggering element there that would cause me to relapse any more than step two, step three, step four, step five. That I don't relapse because of those steps. I relapse because of step one. I relapse because... I did not understand my powerlessness and my unmanageability, or I didn't admit to it to the degree that I need to, because these other steps help keep us sober or, or help us live another life. They don't, they're, they're not foundationally designed to keep us sober. Step one keeps us sober. Understanding what my nine millimeter can do keeps me from picking it up putting a round in the chamber, putting it to my brain and pulling the trigger. I know what that will do. Therefore, I don't do that. Just like in step one, I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, drugs, pornography, compulsive overeating, gambling, you name it, all the things I came in with and my life had become unmanageable. Understanding that is the reason I don't drink, I don't use, I don't gamble, I don't go to strip clubs, and I don't eat a pizza just so I could throw it up, right? Does that make sense to you? So let's understand the steps. Also, there was another person uh, who said they were having a problem with steps eight and nine. And I said, well, why would you have a problem with both steps? If you, if you understand step eight, then step nine, I can understand you having a problem with step nine because that's the action to step eight. But why would you have a problem with making a list of all persons you had harmed 
and became willing to make amends to them all. It's just a list. Why are you afraid of a list? Well, if you're afraid of the list, let's backtrack and see where you had challenges with the other steps. So that's my advice. Some of it was uh, unasked for, but you know me, I'm going to give you my my advice as we go along. Uh, and And what my advice is essentially is an opinion based on 36 years of personal recovery. Take it for what it's worth. I don't know everything, but I know a lot. I've learned from legends in recovery. Not only that, outside influences, Stephen Covey, Og Mandino, Gandhi, Kalidasa, Stephen Covey, you name it. I have had an opportunity. Steve Harvey is a fantastic individual to um, to learn and understand from and motivation and how to approach each day. Having said that, the material that I'm going to speak with today, and I'll put it in the notes, is actually from Alcoholics Anonymous of Greater Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, and, and it's entitled, does an, Why Does an Alcoholic Drink? So we're going to cover this. Understand, if you're not alcoholic, if you're bulimic, if you're a compulsive overeater, if you're a gambler, if you're a drug addict, just cross out whatever word and insert your own, because I think these are topics and notions that are across the board, because what we're trying to do as an addict, as a person addicted to a substance or behavior, is find a path to escape, as Father Martin would say, from that which makes us uncomfortable. There's something in my life, I'm uncomfortable. Some people might not like a quart of gin. Some people might like, you know, a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, right? That's their rush. That's their sensation. Some people may not like overeating and having that compulsion there or or looking at a woman who's naked that will never give you a response, certainly not uh, to the response of the person that's waiting for you at home, or you go and you gamble your lunch money, your milk money, your rent money, because that is an acceleration or you have combined. So again, as we discuss these things, feel free to target where your primary addiction is. So many of us have secondary and tertiary challenges and concerns like many of us come into recovery. But if we attack that one and we solve for one, oftentimes the others just sort of fall off because they're they're contingent. They're, they're grabbing onto you as contingent as the other one having a strong grip. So they're sort of hanging on based on us hanging on to that one primary issue and concern. I'm going to name a few of those. I'm going to discuss some of these things. This is very good material, and it's actually drawn from the 40s and the 50s, so very foundational um, to what we're talking about with respect to addiction and how to recover and some of the questions that you and I may need to ask ourselves as we approach a degree of wellness. It says, what competent mental disorders and doctors who treat them, what do they consider as reasons why an alcoholic, again, cross out that word alcohol, put in any word you want, why we engage in that behavior, in this case, why an alcoholic drink. The number one reason, and you know, let me go back to the doctor's opinion of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's probably Roman numeral 35 or whatever it is. The bottom of the page on the left, it says, an alcoholic drinks essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Wasn't that brilliant, right? Same reason we would do opioids. Same reason I started to throw up. Same reason I began to do math. You know, I like the effect produced by that substance or that behavior. Doesn't make any sense, 
but I liked the effect because it made my feel good feel good. So an escape from situations of life which we cannot face. And now, isn't that foundational? Isn't that true? What is it in my life that I cannot face non-medicated, non-distracted? What is it going on in my emotional, my physical, my personal, my spiritual, my mental life that I cannot face? What brings me harm? What makes me want to retreat? I know I can't retreat physically because I need to go to work. I need to engage. I need to drive. I need to do all these other things that require a physical presence. But can I escape another way? How can I get away from this feeling while still participating in this thing called life? That's why I think a lot of times we even get the term functional alcoholic. Well, there's nothing functional about you or me. I mean, I laugh at the fact that people thought I was functional. My whole life has fallen apart. Just because I can show up doesn't mean I can function. It just means that I think I've learned to hide it. <laughs> I wasn't that good of a hider as I thought I was. But that's why people do what we do. We are escaping from situations of life which I cannot face. Another one. And here's where a mental concern or anxiety come into play in one of the things that uh, Burke and I are discussing. It's evidence of a maladjusted personality, including sexual maladjustment. That's why in AA in the fourth step, we have to take a sexual inventory because so many of us are maladjusted sexually for various reasons, but we are. We have a maladjusted personality. Now, was that personality maladjusted prior to addiction? For many of us, it was. For many of us, and, and it may not be clinical, it could be emotional and psychological, but not psychiatric. There's a there's a real distinction, a real difference there. And, and a, a psychiatrist is a doctor who is also essentially a psychologist, where a a psychologist is not a medical doctor, whereas a psychiatrist uh, is going to be, they have that um, that degree, that inclination, that training. So we look at that as evidence of a maladjusted personality. Having said that, in order to understand the depth of that maladjustment, and is it more of a clinical aspect where I need psychiatric uh, uh, counseling uh, and medication prescribed, or even a psychologist may prescribe medication because they are technically a doctor who can prescribe medication for me, and they have. Um, what came first? The first thing they need to do is I need to get sober first, especially if we're talking about alcohol and drugs. I need to get clean and sober first before I can properly be be properly diagnosed to understand my condition. And not just for a week or two weeks, I need to be sober over a window of time, four, six, eight, nine months, let the alcohol and the drugs leave my system, let my brain start to get back adjusted again, get on a path of mental path of positive thinking as I'm diagnosed over time so they can make the proper prognosis. Uh, back in the early 80s, as many of you know, I, as di I was diagnosed with uh, obsessive and compulsive disorder, and the prognosis was I would never get better. Well, although that diagnosis was true, the prognosis was inaccurate because the, the, the attending psychiatrist did not account for my 
current alcoholism. They weren't accounting for what would this person look like if they got clean, if they got sober. How would that diagnosis or that prognosis change? I'm still obsessive and compulsive, ask anyone who knows me. My middle name is Moore, right? But it's not destructive as it used to be because I've answered, I've solved the drink and drug problem and all of the other aspects and codependent uh, behaviors have dissipated and even disappeared. So, so look for that maladjusted personality. And it talks about even as a development from social drinking to pathological drinking. Social drinking is what makes me feel comfortable because I want to drink pathological drinking I'm now drinking because I need to drink. I need to use. I've developed a dependency that carried it from occasional social to chronic or pathological. That's why in Japan, I love what Father Martin says in his Chalk Talk. If you've never listened to Chalk Talk, go check it out. It's maybe the greatest talk on alcoholism and addiction I have ever heard. The original Chalk Talk. Go find it on YouTube. Listen to it. Make it part of your personal library. He said what Japan, they have a phrase, first a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man, right? That's why so many of us need to go and detox. We have withdrawals over uh, not drinking because our body has developed a pathological need, almost like a, a food disorder, an eating disorder, where we have a set point in our system that tells me how much I need to eat during the day to maintain my system so I don't have food withdrawals. And another situation going back to the to the to the mental side of things and this is where getting a psychiatric or psychological di diagnosis is recommended, really recommended. Maybe maybe somewhere along the line go see someone professional. I think we all should is as a symptom of a major abnormal mental state. So if I don't drink and I no longer use, but I find myself still engaging in destructive behavior, maybe it was that and then it was my addiction because when my addiction clears up, I should return to a mental state that maybe just needs some counseling. Maybe it needs some sorting. Maybe it needs medication. I don't know. I'm not a clinical doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a licensed psychiatrist. You're going to need to get this, this evaluated, but I think everyone should. I believe in mentorship. I believe in clinical diagnosis. I believe there's some incredible people who do some amazing work out there, and there's nothing wrong <coughs> wherever possible having a session with them. <coughs> because if we don't, that untreated mental abnormality, that abnormal mental state will often cause me to relapse. And this time it will be even more difficult because now there's some time between me and my last drink or my last drug. And if we know anything about addiction to a substance is it is a progressive illness, as it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, over any considerable period, things get worse, never better. That's even when I'm not drinking or using, things get worse over time. That is why so many individuals who have decades like me, 36 years of personal recovery. I would not, and this is scary, understand this. I would not go back to April 24th of 1986 and pick up where I left off. I would go back to progressive. It's a progressive illness. I would go back to 
in a relatively short period of time where I would be if I never stopped drinking. Well, we know where I would be would kill me almost overnight. That is why <coughs> people who are addicted to alcohol and drugs for long periods of time, and we are sober and we are clean, if we relapse, we die. And this is the majority of them. Go check it out for yourself. Don't believe me. Don't go use over it. Don't, don't be a guinea pig. Don't be a statistic. I know I don't want to be, but find out. That is why people who drink and use over, over long periods of sobriety, while rather quickly you find them overdosed with three quarts of vodka or scotch or whatever it is, or a needle stuck in their arm, or overdosed on fentanyl because enough is not enough, right? Just know that's true. If you want to go check it out, go check it out. Here we go. Here's another mental health issue as a symptom of a constitutional inferiority or a psychopathic personality. Again, constitutional inferiority is a could be a clinically diagnosed mental disorder as a psychopathic personality that needs to be addressed, needs to be diagnosed, and it needs to be treated because alcoholism and drug addiction will sedate it so it's maybe not as dangerous or deteriorous as it would be without being medicated. But once we come off that medication, right, that's why when I've had surgery, I don't go from anesthesia to post-anesthesia to nothing, right? They wean me off over time, over a window of time with the opioids. So I don't have an increase of pain, nor do I get addicted. It says, take three now, take two later, take one later, now take Tylenol, right? So we need to understand that and be treated accordingly. Um, here, is, here is the thing, and this is why step two is so important. There is an example of an individual drinks because he likes alcohol or the effect produced by alcohol. He knows he can't handle it, but does not care. There is often time that person is dealing with an emotional or a psychological insanity. That's why step two in most all 12-step programs is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Because drinking, using, engaging that negative behavior and expecting a result that's favorable is a form of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and expecting a different result. Many times, this this goes on to say many times, one cannot determine any great or glaring mechanism as the basis of why the drinker drinks. But the revealing fact may be elicited that alcohol is taken to relieve a certain, what they call a vague restlessness. In the individual, isn't that wonderful? A vague restlessness. You know what? I had a vague restlessness growing up and it just compounded as I would get older. Finally, when I was 14 years old and I had an opportunity to drink for the first time, my my restlessness went away. As, as I would tell people and Burke and I were sharing the other day, I believe I came from nothing. I was a nothing and I always was going to be a nothing. Drinking made me feel an almost, like an almost. I had a restlessness about me that alcohol began to solve. It told me right there in that moment, I was okay. I wasn't okay, but it told me I was okay. It relieved that restlessness like a sedative would because alcohol is a sedative. Did you know that ether was the primary source of pain management that anesthesiologists used uh, prior to profanol and other liquid 
drugs that would put me to sleep and not feel pain while not killing me. Um, and ether is simply alcohol without the chemical component that turns it into a liquid. Ether is an alcohol vapor that gave a trained anesthesiologist the ability to sedate me and, and keep me balanced between Vita, which is the vital signs of life, hovering above that while it would sedate me below my involuntary muscle reaction that, will, that would have me react to pain even though I could not feel it. So ether was what sedated me, what balanced me. That's why anesthesiologists only practice, in most all cases, anesthesia, because it is so critical. Anytime you have any surgery, it's always serious because of anesthesia. The procedure, when I had both knees replaced, Dr. Larson had, had replaced probably thousands of knees over the course of his medical career. That was a no big deal. That was a no brainer. It was the anesthesia. That was the challenge. That was going to be the, the breaking point. So understand that is what alcohol tries to do to me. It sedates me. It tells me that which is not okay is now okay. It is also a self-pampering tendency which manifests itself in its refusal to tolerate even temporarily unpleasant states of mind such as boredom, sorrow, anger, disappointment, worry, dissatisfaction, and feelings of inferiority and inadequacy. Isn't that brilliant? And this is where it transcends all substances, all behaviors, because which one of us who has not felt that way, even temporarily, an unpleasant state of mind, even if it's boredom, if I'm very sad over an ongoing or acute traumatic one-time incident, I'm angry at something over time, or again, as a one-time incident, I'm disappointed, I'm worried, I'm depressed, I'm dissatisfied, feelings of inferiority or or inadequacy. Understand these feelings that we have are over time, very rarely, and this is the exception, not the rule, do people relapse over an incident, a fatal death. Now, that is not an excuse because we all experienced tragic things in our life. Some are more tragic than others. We Every one of us is going to get that phone call that's unpleasant, that a loved one has passed away, a loved one has been injured, someone we care about, something tragic has happened to them, right? That is why we need to maintain a proper mental health moving forward in life one day at a time so that when these things do come, we can use it as an opportunity for our higher power to demonstrate their omnipotence in our life. But I guarantee you, if I don't daily treat myself against those things, if I, if I don't solve the things that depress me, that worry me, that disappoint me, that areas of my life where I have control and I'm dissatisfied, that's why so often, and I actually did a, a podcast on control the controllables, and I even did a blog on it. What do you control? What do you don't control? Find out what we do control in our life, control that, and oftentimes the uncontrollable things don't become urgent. They're not even important because we don't control them. You know, I hope this helped. I don't know how to wrap this up by just stopping. So listen to these things. Listen to this podcast more than once. Share with a friend. See what we can do each day 
to help encourage others along the way we have been encouraged by others. Let us encourage others as we have been encouraged by others and share this message. Love life, live life, develop a sober mentality as we go through life that it doesn't it doesn't insulate or isolate me from life's challenges, but it sure does make life more comfortable as I would go through them. My friend Scott right now, Scotty B, pray for Scotty and his son, Zach. Zach has asthma. He's, he's now, and I've got to get an update from, from Scott, but now he's got a breathing tube for treatment. His blood, his, um, uh, his uh, oxygen level was very, very low, especially for an asthma person. And on top of it, then Scott is concerned. He's running Welcome Home Sober Living. He's trying to help raise his grandson, Christian, and be a support. And so all of these things going on in his life. Scott's been clean and sober over 15 years now. With all the disappointment, all of the anger, all of the sorrow, all of the things that he had dissatisfied with this particular situation, Scott is going to be fine. It's painful walking through, and and I want to support him as best I possibly can. But Scott's going to be fine. Do you know why? He was preparing himself day in and day out because he knows there are some times in life which are going to be uncontrollable, and he wants to rely on that which he can control to mitigate and to minimize and to divert the anguish and the agony and the disappointment of things he cannot control. Hey, folks, I'm going to go ahead and stop it here because I could be rambling the next thing you know. And if you've heard me before, I'm a very good rambler. Hey, check out Burke Brown. I'll put the link uh, in these notes here, burkebrown.com. Great friend. Learn about Burke. Support him. Follow him on Instagram as well a great brother, mental health, anxiety. Um, Also, go to Venmo, donate $50. Make sure I have your address so I can send you my promotional thank you. Robert, it's at Robert-Pardon-3, the number three on Venmo, at Robert-Pardon-3. Make sure you send me your address so I can send you that material. Thank you so much for supporting our mission at Recovery Guy. Be blessed. Remember, we got sick apart, but we get whole together. Have a great day and be blessed. (music) 